Open your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You might shop in one of the stores that feature items to decorate your house. Stores like Home Goods or TJ Maxx, Marshalls. I've been to each of those stores, and what I've noticed is that those home decoration stores, well, they have clothes and they have home decorations. I noticed that each of those stores has an area where you can select framed art and decorative wall hangings. In terms of framed art, you can choose such selections as a seashore scene or something perhaps in the way of a sidewalk cafe. In regard to wall hangings, I've noticed another popular item are the pithy sayings that are painted on wooden signs. For example, a popular choice, based on the number that they stock, a popular choice seems to be the sign that says, kiss the cook. You ever see that one? But there is one that caught my attention recently. Here's what it said. Little little wooden sign. Life is short. Eat dessert first. You ever see that one? Yeah. Now, at first glance, that seems cute. I mean, after all, who doesn't like eating dessert? I know I, I sure do. But here's the thing. You give that some thought. And you begin to see it is actually a very sad and disturbing saying. Because that little sign actually offers commentary on this fallen world. Because it says, life is short. And so you've got to grab what you can now while you've still got the chance. Indulge yourself, the sign says. Eat your dessert first. Now, the reason I say that is a commentary on this fallen world is because that philosophy stands in direct contrast to a key principle of God's kingdom. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares this essential kingdom principle. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As we return to the Beatitudes this morning, which begin the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out the blessings enjoyed by those who have come into his kingdom. And he emphasizes a key principle that the world does not like. What is that key kingdom principle? It's this, delayed gratification. The world has no time, has no desire to wait. In stark contrast, Jesus says that those who have come into his kingdom, they are the ones who are willing to wait on the Lord. Let's have a quick look, please, at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What he's saying is, those who hunger now, 
and who wait on the Lord, they shall be filled according to God's timing. As we continue our examination of the Beatitudes today, what we will see is that those who humble themselves before God and come, because of that humility, come into his kingdom, the riches of this world fade in importance because we know that what awaits us is better by far. And that being, and that is being in the kingdom with Christ himself and all the riches of glory that await us. Let's go, please, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus says at Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With those words, Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. And in my view, these words might be among the most profound and the most beautiful words in all the Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God or heaven. Let's take a moment to review the first beatitude. And as we discussed last week, the phrase poor in spirit refers to those who recognize their humility before God. The poor in spirit refers to those who confess that we have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to give God in exchange for our salvation or for entrance into his kingdom. We cannot be good enough. We cannot possibly do enough to earn our way into heaven. Therefore, only when we acknowledge our complete bankruptcy, only when we come before God empty-handed, knowing we have nothing to offer him, only then are we in a position to receive the blessing of God. The reason this beatitude is so important and the reason this one comes first is because it is the foundation upon which all the other beatitudes are built. And not only are the other blessings built upon this first beatitude, the entire Sermon on the Mount is based or founded on this beatitude. And that is because this first beatitude describes believers who have already been brought from this world into the kingdom of God, or synonymously, synonymously, the kingdom of heaven. Those who have put their faith in Christ are brought into the kingdom. And because believers are in the kingdom now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we are citizens of that kingdom. Notice the present tense again in the first beatitude. Those who are poor in spirit, theirs is, present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as we've just seen, the first beatitude speaks of the kingdom as a present possession. The same is true if we look at the last beatitude. Look again, please, at verse 10. We covered this last week. Let's quickly look at verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There it is again. For theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. And so from beginning to end, the Beatitudes are about life in the kingdom of God for those who have entered it because of our humility. I I should say that in such a way that I make sure that we don't enter because of our humility, we enter because of Christ. But the way we receive Christ is to recognize we have to depend on Christ and Christ alone. We cannot earn our way into heaven. While we are temporarily citizens of this world, believers are actually the citizens of the kingdom of God. And therefore, we live not according to the principles of this world, but we've been trained that way, but we have to jettison, we have to throw off the principles of this world and take up the kingdom, the kingdom principles. And so we are to live not according to the ways of the world, but according to the ways of God. This morning, I'd like us to look at the next three Beatitudes. And as we do, we will discover that these two conflicting worlds, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, they're in conflict with one another. But for those who wait on the Lord, there is a coming reward, a promised reward. Let's go to verse 5, Matthew 5, verse 4, as Jesus speaks the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is most notable about this beatitude is we see that the we see here the intentional paradox which appeared in the first statement but becomes all the more apparent here. We have to imagine uh, to ourselves Jesus' first listeners hearing him and saying, wow, did I just hear him right? Did he just say, blessed are those who mourn? We learned last week that being blessed means receiving a gift. When we say, boy, I I feel really blessed that I've received that, this gift. That's what we're talking about with the word blessing. And so the question becomes, how could being blessed, how is that receiving a gift if I'm mourning? Hmm. Well, the blessing, of course, is not the mourning. The blessing is found in what comes after the mourning namely the comfort to follow. And not just any comfort, but God's comfort. Now, we'll think more about God's comfort in just a minute. But first, we need to ask this. What kind of mourning is Jesus referring to? And when we're, of course, just to be clear, when we talk about mourning, we're talking about grieving. Now, John MacArthur points out that the Greek language has nine terms for mourning. And in fact, I looked at an English thesaurus. We have just as many, if not more, terms for mourning or grieving, sadness, sorrow. It demonstrates, says MacArthur, that human history is a story of tears. The longer we've lived, the more we realize that this fallen world, while it is a joyful place, it is also filled with difficulty and disappointment. The specific Greek word 
that is used here and translated for us as mourn is the strongest word possible that could have been used in this position for mourning. Remember of those nine words? This is the strongest word possible. It is usually the one that is used that is reserved for those who are grieving the death of a loved one. Now, does that mean Jesus is promising comfort to those who have lost loved ones, spouses, parents, children? I'm sure it includes that. I'm sure it includes every possible scenario for the grieving heart. The book of Revelation tells us in chapter 21 that in the final day, when all things are made new, he will wipe away every tear. Amen. Every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because the old order has passed away. But in terms of the context of the Beatitudes, it is most likely that Jesus uses this most extreme word not to speak of a particular cause for that morning, but to reflect the extreme depth of that morning. It's the kind of morning, he would say, that would overwhelm us when we are grieving the death of a loved one. And so what kind of grieving, what kind of mourning is he talking about? For what cause? Well, most scholars agree that Jesus is referring to a believer's deep mourning for sin. The same people who are poor in spirit, realizing that we've come before God empty-handed because we have nothing of value to offer God for our salvation, we are the same people who fully recognize the depth of our sin as we are transformed by the Spirit of God, by God's Holy Spirit, we begin to see that not only did we have nothing to offer God, there was actually so much stacked up in our account that prevented us from entering heaven. If not for the forgiveness available through Christ on the cross, we would have been doomed. We would have been without hope. It would have been impossible for us to enter heaven or the eternal kingdom of God. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, the form of the verb there tells us that Jesus meant an ongoing, a continuous mourning, meaning we just don't mourn once and we're in. He's talking about an ongoing, a continuous mourning, an ongoing grieving process. When we move into a new house or apartment, that house or apartment is generally made ready for us. The realtor will make sure that it is thoroughly cleaned so that when you come in, it is sparkling. But once we move in, it then falls to us to continually work at keeping that place clean. In a similar way, when we confess our sin and start a new life in Christ, Jesus thoroughly cleans us. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But we know that's not the end of the story because we have